You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision making during a racial revolution. Stick around as we analyze Canadian news and Black issues on a weekly basis. And if you think we've got the sauce, subscribe. On this week's episode, we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of April 4th, including. The Federal Liberal Convention voted to support UBI, National Long-Term Care Standards, and a Green New Deal. O'Toole says he'd launch a pandemic inquiry if elected PM, helping thousands of Canadians by forgiving CERB tax for low-income Canadians. DMX has passed away. Ryerson University names its law school after Lincoln Alexander. A massive volcano erupts in St. Vincent and plenty more. To kick off our politics segment, this weekend, the Liberals had their policy convention where they laid out their vision for Canada. According to many observers, the party needed to emerge from the convention with a good message and momentum, and it seems like they largely accomplished both. If you're a moderate or center-left voter like me, you were probably content with what came out of it, especially, especially in comparison to the discord that showed itself at the conservative convention just last month. The Liberals have been saying for some time now that the pandemic has created an opportunity for the country to reimagine the economy so it works for more people, and the convention endeavored to do just that. A number of policies were debated, from universal basic income to nationally enforced long-term care standards, to the Green New Deal, to fully taxing capital gains, highlighting the party base's progressive bent on policy. Mm -hmm. So let's take a sec to highlight the outcomes of those votes. UBI, or universal basic income maybe ended up being the best story of the weekend, where delegates voted in favor of enacting the program to support Canadians, especially those hit hardest in the pandemic, like female, young, Black, and Indigenous Canadians. It would obviously go a long way in supporting working-class Canadians, too. The Parliamentary Budget Officer, or PBO, released a report showing that universal basic income could cut national poverty rates in half, fam. And I've talked about some of the other benefits of basic income on episode 39. In response to that vote on UBI, newly appointed conservative finance critic Ed Fast said, discussing universal basic income is, quote, par for the course with Justin Trudeau and the liberals. Instead of focusing on creating jobs, they're fixated on implementing risky, expensive, and untested economic policies. And quote, untested. Even though <laughs> UBI works. It has been well-researched and would be a cheaper and more streamlined alternative to the current patchwork of safety net programs. He's dumb. (laughs) Right? So it's either dude is out of touch with the facts or he's deliberately misleading people. Either way, no one should want that guy as our next finance minister. 
Anyway, on long-term care, liberal delegates voted overwhelmingly to create and enforce national standards. Interestingly enough, though, while liberals voted in favor of a Green New Deal, they rejected a resolution to reduce the capital gains tax exemption to zero, meaning they supported fully taxing all investment gains from assets like stocks or real estate once sold, as opposed to taxes applying to only 50% today. There was also a resolution in support of an inheritance tax on all assets over $2 million, but that resolution, as well as the one on capital gains, failed by a 62 to 38 margin. Almost oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, we'll see how these resolutions impact the budget set to be released next week, because while successful policy resolutions become official party policy, they're not actually binding on the government. That said, Trudeau has said that the grassroots guide his decisions. Now, I thought it'd be productive to be a, to do a quick comparison of the Liberal Convention to the Conservative one last month, because you can see a big difference in priorities that should make clear who the main parties are speaking to. While social conservatives within the Conservative Party were trying to force abortion back on the agenda and take away a woman's right to choose like it's the 90s or something, the Liberal Party, which is already the standard bearer for women's rights, voted overwhelmingly, 77% to give support to Canadians for UBI at theirs. At the Conservative Convention, they spent considerable energy debating whether or not climate change was real. In contrast, the Liberal Party has taken climate change fairly seriously for quite some time and has a well-rounded policy that's widely accepted by economists, industry, and climate activists alike, though many on the left, in particular the Green Party and NDP, are demanding that they do better, which is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Then there's the fact that 97% of Liberals also voted to strengthen long-term care, while Aaron O'Toole and his team think the market should dictate the rules which is exactly why so many seniors suffered and died at the hands of greedy management in the first place. I mean, from my perspective, we're just built different. Yeah, facts. Speaking of strengthening things, Finance Minister Christian Freeland says her budget that'll be released next week will focus on creating 1 million jobs and growth and healing the wounds of COVID. Some of the ways she envisions doing that is providing a $7 billion increase to the Canada Health Transfer, including $4 billion in one-time funding directly to the transfer and $1 billion more for vaccinations. We know there have been strong hints about a national child care system as well as pharmacare, and we already know she plans to spend $100 billion in stimulus measures the Conservatives oppose. I guess they really don't want to win the next election, huh? Anyway, we'll, we'll see what form all this spending takes next week, especially for Black and marginalized Canadians. Any thoughts on what you're looking for in next week's budget or on comparing the two party conventions, patients? Yeah, I, th- I think it's crazy. I love the example that you brought that while one party is considering universal basic income, literally creating a system or a society where no one starves. Yep. So, like, so progressive, so holistic. Mm-hmm. Another party is fixated on a single issue debate, right? And 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 uh, so go on if you want to go on. I just don't. I, I just don't understand. Like, how many people? Like, how how can you think that right now, in the midst of the third wave of the COVID nineteen global pandemic, now you think you know, or, or a month ago rather, you think is the best time to to once again discuss abortion? an issue that has been laid to rest when it comes to policy. They're out of touch as fuck. But who, but 
<laughs> I, I guess, I guess, I, I agree with you, of course. But I just don't understand. Are these, are these like hundreds of thousands of people, Curtis? Uh, uh, within a conservative, what, what do you mean? Like, how many people would have been involved in this convention? It must have been like, you the know, conservative one, like a few thousand, four thousand or so. Oh, okay, 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 okay. If it's if it's such a small convention, then okay. I just because yeah, four thousand people. No, 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 you're on the right track though, because the people who go to conventions are the party stalwarts, right? They're the most engaged people in the party. Yeah. And then we also know that when we're talking about social conservatives, which, you know, are advocates of, of, of abortion laws, right? they represent 40% of the party. They're a significant chunk of that party. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you just talk about something else? Like, They don't know how. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Apparently everything is good and the only issue right now is abortion. Yo, so, you know, you brought this up and I kind of, I'm going off on a tangent here, but... Trudeau, I think he framed it really nicely. You know, he framed them as being disconnected, which I already said. But in terms of disconnection, so here's one of the questions. How disconnected do you have to be to admit that you'd cut CERB, a lifeline for millions of people during the worst economic crisis in a century? Or call young people lazy when their summer jobs disappear because of a global pandemic? Or, or, Or flirt with this information about public health information and vaccines while a deadly virus takes loved ones, friends, and neighbors. How disconnected do you have to be to refuse that climate change is even real? Yeah, well. (laughs) Even as people's basements flood and wildfires tear through communities, end quote. So, I mean, yo, Trudeau handed it to them. Yeah. And for good reason. It's too easy, man. It's too easy. Yeah. Jumping to our next story and continuing our conversations about the conservatives. As part of an attempt to rebuild his image with Canadians in light of his falling approval numbers, Aaron O'Toole is pitching a new idea, saying that a conservative government led by him would call a public inquiry into all aspects of the liberal government's COVID response, accusing the PM of being, quote, unprepared for COVID, as if other world leaders were and he would have done any better. O'Toole said he'd seek a prominent former jurist or someone above the political fray to lead the inquiry, even though from the onset he's making it very political. In his own words, he said, quote, the government was late at the border, late on securing rapid tests, late now on vaccines, and that's why we're having a more severe third wave. Uh, right, because the third wave had nothing to do with inadequate provincial lockdown measures exactly. and we're the only country experiencing the third wave, but okay. He went on to say, Canadians want to know we can restore confidence and self-reliance as a country, and that's what this public exercise will do, end quote. He also suggested appointing a special monitor from the Auditor General's office to track the pandemic response and ensure lessons are recorded to deal with future pandemics. In response, Federal Health Minister Patty Hyju said she and the government are focused on the pandemic, but in due time, they'd be interested in a thorough examination too, saying, quote, I can't predict the nature of the inquiry, but I can tell you that we would want all Canadians to participate. So we're open to a public inquiry that is as deep as necessary, that's focused on how our country can be better prepared for global health threats in the future, end quote. And it's probably needed, seeing as 23,000 Canadians and counting have died from the virus. If I'm honest, though, I would have told Aaron to shut the fuck up. <laughs> right then and there. Because dude is always throwing stones while literally proposing no helpful policies of his own. And there's a reason for that. So, Patty, you're better than me. Anyway, academics like Professor Wesley Wark, 
who is a senior fellow with the Center for International Governance Innovation in Waterloo, says the feds are moving too slowly, so he was happy to hear O'Toole's comments. He says, although there have been, quote, piecemeal efforts around review like initial reports from the Auditor General, there needs to be a, quote, whole government, comprehensive, lesson learned exercise, end quote. So, thoughts on Aaron O'Toole's latest push for relevancy? Okay, so, of course, I think a review or um, an, an inquiry is best practice, right? Something like okay. this hits your country, for sure. Pick a jurist, have them do a real deep dive into what happened. What mm-hmm. I think they will find happened, Curtis, is that <laughs> at the federal level, there was a government desperately trying to spend as much money as possible to help people feel secure. And they mm-hmm. will find three conservative-leaning governments, Alberta, Quebec, and Ontario, fighting tooth and nail against the federal government. Oh, don't forget Saskatchewan. Oh, Sask- I mean, yeah, okay, Saskatchewan too with their 10 people. But like, I just feel like, like how, like, Aaron, think about what actually has been happening. And no offense to like academics, like, because I, I know I'm an academic. Mm-hmm. We're the worst people to ask, right? Because we will always have an answer. And also, academics are the most slow moving people. They're or- known for being slow to move. So asking people like Wesley Ward, okay, sure, buddy. Sure, we, we, we could have moved faster. Do you have any like practical ways that that things could have have moved faster at any at, at any stage in this process no like honestly aaron yeah we know you just need to stay in the headlines right now but now asking for an inquiry or speaking about an inquiry when you get in government which is never going to happen <laughs> okay thanks thanks for your two cents when you get in government in 2050 then we'll we'll talk about an inquiry like for me, it's like, yo, so let me get this straight. First, conservatives complained we were spending too much. Then it was, you're not doing enough to support businesses. Then it was, you're not getting enough vaccines fast enough. Then it was false alarms about the economy tanking. Now he's pushing for a pandemic inquiry, all whilst we're still in a raging pandemic. Like, I already said it. He's so far out of touch, it's not even funny. You know what? I have a question. I have a question, Patience. Why does this guy and his party not care about average Canadians? Well, because <laughs> if they did, right? If they did, they put forth actual plans to help us. Instead, all they're doing is finger pointing at the government, even though most Canadians, like you pointed out, think the government is doing just fine. And in fact, don't like the vibes that Aaron is giving off. Right. Dead it, man. <laughs> Jumping to the Canadian economy. Now, I don't know about you, but I got a nasty tax bill this year because of CERB. I usually get a a pretty good sized tax return because of my business development work, but there was no such business development work for me last year due to the pandemic. So this tax season, I actually owe some money. Man's with cheese. But it's, it's really not about me and it's not just me that's hurting. According to a new report by the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, taxes owed on CERB will be the reason for some of the poorest Canadians remaining below the poverty line this year. David McDonald, who was a senior economist at the CCPA, used available data and StatsCAD modeling to quantify what owing taxes would mean for the lowest income CERB recipients. And according to David, there are 422,000 CERB recipients who are living below the poverty line, even with the benefit. 
Those people now owe a total of $232 million in taxes on CERB, and around half of them, so 208000 will be so close to the poverty line that if they didn't have to pay the average of about 550 bucks in CERB taxes back, they would remain above the poverty line too. Hmm. As David said himself, quote, put another way, CERB taxes owed well after people received the benefit will be the reason why many remain below the poverty line, end quote. Hmm. So what's the fix? McDonald is recommending that lower-income Canadians not repay some of some or all CERB taxes. Doing so would reduce their tax bill and help many who don't have the money to pay. He estimates that the program wouldn't even cost half a billion dollars. You could design an exception, I think, that would target particularly lower-income families so that they don't have this tax bill hanging over them, end mm-hmm. quote. For their part, the Trudeau Liberals have made some concessions to help CERB recipients, like when they agreed that self-employed Canadians who may have access to benefit, though they weren't eligible for it, wouldn't have to repay the funds, and allowing CERB recipients with income below $75,000 to defer interest in 2020 for any taxes owing. We'll see what the government decides. Any thoughts on lower-income Canadians being exempt from repaying CERB taxes, patients? Yeah, I think I'm going to say this is a no-brainer, mm-hmm. but um, I, I appreciate just the conversation mm-hmm. because who would have thought that it would cost less than a billion dollars to waive um, this um, tax on CERB for our, our most marginalized folks? What we know is that those who are living under the poverty line are more likely to be um, seniors, mm-hmm. are more likely to be you know, folks with, with multiple children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that this is just part of our, our social security net uh, and, and our system here in Canada. Just, just like you said earlier, uh, we're built different, right? So yep. this is definitely the way to go. Yeah, yeah I definitely hope the, uh, the government makes that move. Jumping to our next story regarding the Canadian economy, in a bad sign for the airline industry, Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Billy Bishop Airport is seeking private investors to cover pandemic losses. Yikes. The move to privatize the island airport is being made as a result of the COVID crisis that has forced Porter Airlines and Air Canada to stop commercial service. It would ultimately ensure the airport can survive the pandemic and emerge with strong financial footing. Port's Toronto CEO, Jeffrey Wilson, responsible for the airport and nearby port, said the investors they're seeking are likely among the 25 or so institutional funds that invest in transportation infrastructure today, like OMERS, or Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement System, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, or Teachers Pension Plan. 
For context, Billy Bishop has 2.8 million travelers pass through it in a typical year, making it Canada's ninth busiest airport by passenger volume. The airport has been running on its cash reserves and is required to be financially sufficient. So in good times, it operates on landing fees, airport improvement charges, and rent paid by tenants like other Canadian airports. But most of that dried up as 2020 passenger volumes fell 74% from 2019 levels. Canadian airports rely on passenger traffic for 90% of their income. Collectively, they face a total of $5.5 billion in lost revenue for 2020 and 2021. So to survive, they've taken on a total of $2.8 billion in debt, according to the association's president, Daniel Robert Gooch. This is, of course, a developing story, so we'll keep our eyes on it. And hopefully, hopefully, this doesn't make air travel more expensive. Moving on to blackity black black news, Ryerson University renames their law school after Canada's first black MP and first black cabinet minister, Lincoln Alexander. Toronto-born, a brilliant lawyer and a distinguished public servant, Lincoln Alexander, who was born in 1922 and lives until 2012, played a key role in promoting multiculturalism, education, and youth leadership. The renaming of Ryerson University's Faculty of Law marks the culmination of Ryerson Law's inaugural year as Toronto's newest law school in over a century. Wow. The Toronto School says the Faculty of Law will officially be renamed the Lincoln Alexander School of Law at Ryerson University during an online inaugural year-end celebration on May 6th. In his provincial, federal, public, and private roles, Alexander championed equity, diversity, and inclusion. For his pioneering contribution, he was appointed as a companion of the Order of Canada and to the Order of Ontario. Even though a conservative, (laughs) we were proud to see him serve as Hamilton West MP from 1968 to 1980. And in 1979, he was appointed Labour Minister. He made history again by becoming Ontario's first black lieutenant governor, serving from 1985 to 1991. Did I ever tell you about my personal experience with Lincoln? No. So um, you know that I was a Royal Canadian Air Cadet. Yes. When I first joined the program and joined my squadron in Malvern, our unit was called 876 Malvern Squadron. Within my first year, the commanding officer at the time endeavored to make Link... Um, our new squadron name. So we were renamed Lincoln Alexander. And as a result of that, Mr. Alexander actually came all the way down. So this is the context, right? Um, Training nights for cadets. It's, it's usually a weeknight evening, you know, between seven and nine o'clock. And we're talking about being in Malvern. So Link came all the way from Hamilton in his uniform on a Monday night. That's when our parade nights were. And he spent time with all of us as youth. He spent time in particular with me. Oh. We have pictures. Oh. And and he, you know, I I mean, look, I was I was 11, 12, 12 years old, right? So yeah. do I remember exactly what he said? No, but I do remember seeing this black man who was very engaged, very engaged mm-hmm. with youth in uniform, this powerful looking man, and noticing his attention on me and others and how much he wanted us to succeed. And I remember how good that felt. Yeah. So, you know, I'm happy to see this move. And uh, of course, may uh, Link continue to rest in peace. Mm-hmm. In our next story, 
a man named Hubert Davis is proud to have a white wife. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Yo, I didn't know you were going there. What? Davis, who was <laughs> Davis, who was an assistant basketball coach for years at the University of North Carolina, spoke at his first news conference since being named successor to coaching legend Roy Williams, where one of his comments uh, was has quickly gone viral. This is newsworthy because Davis is the first black head basketball coach in University of North Carolina's history. Okay, this is the first black head coach for basketball in their history. And and Davis knows this, right? Because Davis is quoted saying, I know this is significant. And quote, I know that this is I know that it is significant that I'm the fourth African American head coach in any sport in the history of the University of North Carolina. I'm very proud to be African American, but I'm also very proud that my wife is white. And I'm also very proud that my three very beautiful, unbelievable kids are a combination of us, end quote. Yo, what? <laughs> what are you what are you talking about, fam? I like I'm I'm legit like, okay, so what is the point of his framing? Off the rip, the man was being defensive about his white wife. No nobody asked you. Like, why'd you bring it up? I don't get it. What? Exactly. Well, what is your framing? What what do you what? There was no framing. There was no there was no story. Like it was just like I, it, it was it was as if he needed in order to be proud to be an African American, yeah. he also needed to state how proud he was that his wife was white. Yeah, or maybe it's you know, that was a comment to appease the white establishment in a place like North Carolina. Right? Man. Make white people feel more comfortable with their whiteness. But like that just doesn't it, it just doesn't you know when something just it's done. It's like what is that? What is that? How does this apply to the situation? You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. It it was it was cringeworthy. It was awkward. Uh, you know, Hubert Davis, we're 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 happy for you. <laughs> I mean, no, no, no. For real, though, no, he's got love. I hope real love. So that's that's positive, right? Yeah, but you know, unnecessary. Our next story, the police who murdered Mississauga native Ejaz Chowdhury will not face charges. In a decision released Tuesday, the SIU director, Joseph Martino, concluded the Peel Regional Police officer who fired two bullets into Ejaz Chowdhury's chest acted reasonably when he opened fire from the balcony of Chowdhury's locked Mississauga, Ontario apartment on June 20th, 2020. The officer who shot Chowdhury refused to speak to the SIU or turn over his notes, as is allowed under the Ontario Police Services Act. All that is known of his perspective are the words another officer reportedly heard him say immediately after the shooting. The report says, quote, I had to do it. I had no choice, end quote. Yeah, so on the real, yeah. more outcomes like this occur, the more I harden in my belief that police forces in our region and the SIU for that matter mm-hmm. must be defunded in order for us to rebuild something better from the ashes. Because anyone who is just knows this ain't it. And as the family said themselves, quote, if there are no reasonable grounds to lay charges in this case, then when will the SIU ever take action for a police killing? End quote. I wonder, does anyone actually believe them? Does anyone actually believe that they had no choice of all of the tools that the 
that the Peel police has at their disposal, that when dealing with an elderly man, that you had no choice. I know I don't. Yeah. Like intellectual inconsistency doesn't begin to explain that. In case you missed it, a Toronto Asian landlord lied to police about a black family having a gun, instantly demonstrating why black people have been reluctant to support Asian Canadians through their spike of COVID-related racism. Entrepreneur Tessa Janae Monroe recounted the incident, saying, quote, My little sister paid a security deposit on a room to rent from the couple. Two weeks before the move-in date, they were very rude to her, making her feel uncomfortable, so she decided to get the money back and not proceed, end quote. As a result, the Asian landlord could clearly be seen in a recording of the incident lying to police multiple times about the presence of a gun. I won't mince words, patients. It's examples like this that stop many black people from standing with Asians currently under attack, right? Many Asians or their parents or grandparents wield their privilege and anti-blackness just like this landlord tried to do it. So please, for our Asian brothers and sisters who are listening today, Make sure you never be this man. And please, if you can, talk to your parents and family members about this type of behavior. It needs to end. DMX has passed away. DMX, beloved rapper, songwriter, and actor, has died at the age of 50. X was admitted to hospital in grave condition Saturday, April 3rd in New York after suffering a heart attack triggered by an apparent drug overdose, according to TMZ and Billboard. Born Earl Simmons in Mount Vernon, New York, on December 18, 1970, and raised in nearby Yonkers, he was a devout Christian and has stated in a previous interview that he read the Bible every single day. DMX was also an actor with extensive film and television credits, including Belly, Romeo Must Die, Top 5, Chappelle Show, The Chris Rock Show, and Niyama Fix My Life. Don't Try to Understand, A Year in the Life of Earl DMX Simmons, a much-anticipated, intimate glimpse into the rapper's life, career, and struggles with addiction, made its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2020. Mm. Personally, um, you know, X, X had a bigger impact on my life that I only realized after doing some reflection. I mean, literally, I remember being nine in Scarborough and bonding with friends of all races over his club anthem, Party Up, or otherwise known as Up In Here. I remember being nine in Jamaica, taking him in on Aliyah's Back In One Piece or What They Really Want. You remember that track? What these bitches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even at the age, analyzing and deconstructing his version of masculinity. Hmm. That same track, What They Really Want, was a favorite of mine, by the way. Or going through crippling depression in high school years, but finding an anchor while listening to him on Slippin' Fallen. Mm-hmm. He was one of those artists that helped me understand myself. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. Rest in paradise, Earl Simmons. Moving on to news from the world. This is uh, another kind of sad story. A volcano erupts in St. Vincent on Friday a 4,000-foit volcano named La Soufrière erupted with an explosion that, that shook the ground, spewed ash skyward, and blanketed the island in a layer of fine volcanic rock. 
About 16,000 people have had to flee their ash-covered communities with as many belongings as they could carry. This is a significant number of people since the island is only home to more than 110,000 people. So that's over 10% of the country. Mm -hmm. This is the first large eruption since 1979 and has transformed the island's lush towns and villages into gloomy gray versions of themselves. Other Caribbean islands, as far away as Barbados, are also experiencing limited visibility as a result of ashfall, and residents of those islands are being told to stay indoors to maintain public safety. The volcano erupted again on Sunday, resulting in widespread power cuts and even more dispersal of ash, making it difficult to breathe. Luckily, there have been no reports of anyone being killed or injured by the initial blast or those that followed. But scientists warn that the explosions could continue for days, even weeks, and that the worst could be yet to come. As someone from the Caribbean, Curtis, any any comments on La Souffrière? You know, I'm, I'm happy, first and foremost, that to date, no one has been injured or killed. What is concerning from this, because um, I remember, for example... Which hurricane was it? This would have been a hurricane, the hurricane that happened in the Caribbean, particularly hitting Barbados, I think it was in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I remember that, you know, one of the big debate, not really debate, but one of the big concerns in the aftermath of that, uh, you know, horrendous natural disaster was how on earth are Barbados and other countries that have been ravaged by that storm? How are they going to pay for this? Right. And, and, and the exact thing applies here. How, are, how is St. Vincent and the, the citizens of St. Vincent, how is their government going to pay for all of this? I sincerely hope that CARICOM, which is the Caribbean, uh, which is the uh, basically literally the Caribbean community of countries, um, is able to step up. Canada and Jamaica currently chair a working group that considers how we can improve spending to help developing countries in the Caribbean. So I assume that this is going to be on the agenda. And as I've been alluding to, I hope we find a way to support those from St. Vincent in this time because they obviously need it. On another note, I just found it really interesting to to stop and take a moment to appreciate the the majesty of planet Earth. Hmm. You know, here we see the planet literally remaking itself. Yeah. And um, I think that that is a great demonstration of what we all should do every now and then. Yeah, yeah. Moving on to questions for the audience. This week, we learned that vaccine distribution has not been data-driven at all. The vaccines were missing COVID-19 hotspots the way oil misses water. (laughs) Since this information has gone public, Doug Ford's administration had to do an about-face and target COVID-19 hotspots, which should have been done from the jump, and now have opened up vaccine distribution to everyone over 18 in hotspots like Jane and Finch. It's not just Finch. There are 113 high-risk postal codes across the province that are now getting the attention they deserve. In addition to refocusing on hotspots and high-risk areas, the province has also increased the rate of vaccinations vaccinating 100,000 people per day on three days this past week. In your opinion, are our vaccine woes an issue of speed or an issue of strategy? 
You just listened to episode 53 of The Trip. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. You can keep up with us on our Instagram and through our Patreon pages dedicated to the podcast. Follow us or support us at The Drip T.O. We love our many non-BIPOC listeners, but a message specifically to our Black listeners. We hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Toronto's very own Be On Location for our new sound. You can find more tracks from him wherever you get your music. See y'all next time. Yeah. I told y'all I'm coming back with this one, right? Yeah. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.